From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, my name is Abraham Kim. Uh, I'm the executive director of CKA, and I'm here with my co-host, Jessica Lee. How are you doing, Jessica? Good. Thank you, Abe. I'm uh, pretty excited about today's interview. Uh, we are interviewing Tim Huang. He's the founder and CEO of Fiscal Note, uh, a media politics company here in Washington, D.C. He was, in fact, our, our Trailblazer winner award last year at our gala. Uh, but the significance of, of this company uh, is that it is a, an important and growing uh, media company that is providing an incredible amount of transparency for for laws and regulations, uh, not only at the federal level, but down to the local level. And more importantly, he is providing this information for voters and, and for consumers uh, across the world. And it's not just here in the United States, but uh, in many different countries. And I think particularly interesting in your interview with him, Jessica, is that he seems to have cracked the nut uh, on how to connect great journalism with providing great data. And there's an important business model here that he, he shares with us. And so uh, I'm, I'm particularly interested in uh, how your interview went with him, Jessica. Yes, it was a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation. You know, many of you have probably heard about Fiscal Note's acquisition of CQ and Roll Call for $180 million. And so this was quite a groundbreaking achievement for such a young company and a young CEO <laughs> to achieve here in Washington. And so um, just getting some perspectives on how Tim approaches uh, the world of media and government and of course technology as a way to make our economy and the way we function more efficient were so interesting to me. And, and I think you will all find it fascinating as well. So uh, without further ado, let's turn over to the interview. My name is Jessica Lee, and I'm your host of Council of Korean Americans podcast series called Korean American Perspectives. Today, I'm pleased to interview founder and CEO of Fiscal Note, Tim Huang, about his personal journey to Fiscal Note and his passion for closing the gap in representation of Asian Americans in the media and the news. Tim is also a member of CKA and will be speaking at our upcoming Empower Summit on November 2nd here in Washington. Thank you for being with us today, Tim. Thank you for having me. Great. So I want to start this conversation by opening up with a easy question. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you grew up? Sure. Well, as you know, my name is Tim Wong. I'm the founder and CEO of Fiscal Note. Um, I uh, grew up in the Midwest, actually, initially. I was born in Michigan uh, when I was very, very young. My parents actually moved to Washington. My father worked for the federal government. And so uh, he ended up working for NIH and NIST. Grew up in a lot of sort of science-based backgrounds and the like. And my mother actually was an art teacher and an art curator. And so kind of got a little bit of both sides of the world, you know, in terms of uh, left brain, right brain, but had a good opportunity to, to learn from them both. And then I think um, growing up in Washington, there was certainly a lot of 
opportunities to get involved in the Korean American community. It's one of the obviously the largest Korean American communities in, in the country, and so I had that really great experience kind of growing up from the from a very early age. Great. And how did being Korean American as a child impact you? Were you proud of being Korean American? Were there a lot of Korean Americans in in your neighborhood and in your life growing up? You know, I want to say that uh, uh, you know, to be totally candid, I was not super proud to be Korean American when I was growing up. I think that I viewed Korea, at least initially, as small market, a little bit of backwards in terms of cultural backgrounds and the like. And you know, a lot of my friends were not particularly Korean. I'm second generation fully, and so. That being said, you know my parents. You know they told me to go to Korean school. We went to church, which was at a Korean church. Um, my mother and father are still very, very Korean to this day, and so I think over time, as I've gotten older, um, that's definitely shifted quite a bit. But one of the things I appreciate about growing up now that I'm a little bit older is the the values um, that that came over from being Korean and Korean American, and um, a lot of those values I think are. Uh, what differentiates me personally uh, from a lot of the uh, the people that I work with and the, and the entrepreneurship community that I sort of surround myself with, you know, the the ideas of sort of working hard and staying humble and, and you know, continuing to, to work for your country and the like, while not particularly unique to Koreans, I think are um, especially pronounced in Koreans. And those individual values, I think, have carried over over the last couple of years or so. Can you tell us about your experience in college and whether there were any important lessons that you uh, took away from your time there? Well, I think that, you know, my less, my earliest life lessons started certainly maybe a little bit earlier. And so to give you a little bit of background on myself, I uh, started my first company when I was 14 years old, um, which is, uh, you know, I didn't consider myself an entrepreneur, uh, but certainly thought a lot about building things. And I think that, um, Koreans are definitely builders. You I know, mean, if you think about sort of the, you know, the, the miracle on the Han River and the growth of the, 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 the country in the last several decades or so, you know, I, I've always thought about myself as sort of creating new things and trying new things and, and the like. And I think that was the first lesson, which was just um, if I see an opportunity, just going and building something around it. And then I think the second was around sort of societal impact. And, you know, around that time, I also started getting involved in politics as you know, I, I, you know, ended up working for President Obama's 08 campaign, uh, you know, kind of unknowingly. And then, you know, that ended up turning out pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, afterwards, I uh, ended up running for office, uh, you know, representing Montgomery County um, on the Board of Education. Um, got elected at 17, which is a really weird experience. But kind of having that that sense of public service, you know, intermixed with, uh, you know, trying to build things, I think is something that I, I've thought a lot about. And that's actually one of the reasons what reasons why I went to technology, because I thought a lot about societal impact. And going back to the original question about college, um, you know, when I was in college, uh, originally, I, you know, majored in politics and public policy um, at Princeton, I was studying because I really wanted to be do something in politics and in, in government or the like. And, um, you know, I was thinking about it and talking to people. And if you remember at the time, um, you know, I was going to college in the uh, early 2010s. And so um, this is, you know, when, you know, pre- the president was trying to pass, uh, you know, health care reform, when the rise of the sort of conservative Tea Party, you know, came up. And I was thinking to myself, wow, this is not an industry I want to be in. <laughs> the, the pace of change is so slow. And even if you change something, you know, the, the probability that it'll get rolled back is actually quite high or, or struck down in court. And so one of the, the epitomies that I had was, 
you know, we were working on healthcare reform and trying, you know, very, very hard. And I was talking to a friend of mine who started a telemedicine company, and he had essentially built a mobile app that connected rural patients and urban doctors at very low cost and had scaled this out to millions of Americans, essentially low cost healthcare for millions of Americans. And I thought, well, this is the dream, right? Because that's what the government has been trying to do for decades, and you did it in two years. And so I think that the, the pioneers of change have definitely shifted. You know, in the 20th century, the government was viewed as the opportune sort of place to make changes. Um, and in the 21st century, that's actually shifted to the technology industry. And every challenge that you see in education and healthcare and environment, in you know, information and data and, you know, cybersecurity, privacy, all those battles are getting fought in the private sector. And I felt very strongly that I needed to make a large impact there. And so I made a, a slight career shift. You know, in college, I thought that I would originally go into the government, you know, kind of using my tech and politics background to work at the State Department or the FCC or something like that. But, you know, I kind of flipped the, the script and I said, well, what, is, what can somebody who understands government politics do in the technology sector? And um, the biggest impact that I thought about was building a company. And that's really was, was the beginning of my career, you know, post-college. Hmm. And how did you get interested in big data and artificial intelligence? Well, I think that, you know, there's a lot of the talk, both in Korea and in the U.S., about something called the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And, um, you know, the Industrial Revolution of previous eras were very, very specifically built around raw materials, right? So if you think about the previous Industrial Revolution, it was about transforming steel and oil, um, these raw resources into something that we could use. And that, to a large extent, is why America exists today, because of these industrialists that built companies that power our energy, power our transportation, power our telecommunications, power our transportation and automobile industries. The concept of the fourth industrial revolution is very interesting because it means that the raw resources of the 21st century are not sort of physical materials anymore. They're actually data. And if you think about the world that we live in today, the amount of data that gets, that gets produced is quite substantial, right? You know, you wake up in the morning, you turn on your, your smart uh, thermostat, um, your energy consumption, you know, you get out the door, you know, you turn on your car, um, it's collecting data all the time around navigation, your smartphone devices, constantly collecting data on every photo you click on every website you visit, you know, every time you swipe a credit card, um, there's, you know, uh, thousands of pieces of data that get collected on on your personal history. Um, you know, when you go to work, everything that you do is monitored on email, on uh, software devices and the like. And so, um, Everything that you think about, everything that you do, every step that you take is monitored. Um, um, in some ways, that's that's frightening. In some ways, that's good because it means that we have um, more data to improve people's lives, um, whether it's in healthcare or transportation or logistics or energy, whatever it is. Um, and the concept of improving human efficiency at this point is primarily driven by the amount of data that we have. So you take, for example, precision agriculture. Um, you know, we uh, are facing a crisis, I think, in the next 20 or 30 years about whether or not we can actually feed the world population, uh, you know, based off of the, the rate of growth as well as the ability for us to produce um, actual food. The, the one saving grace, I would say, apart from sort of, you know, improvements in crop yields and the like is actually our ability to use data um, in agriculture to drive efficiency, you know, using self-driving tractors and, uh, you know, uh, meter by meter data around moisture and the like to actually improve uh, productivity. That's like the fundamentals of, of human society of driving our ability to feed ourselves that's driven by cutting edge technologies and data and artificial intelligence. And so 
I think that, uh, you know, when uh, I think about, you know, the, the rate of change in the 21st century, it is primarily around um, how do we collect more data? How do we use that data more efficiently? And then the real question after that is how do we use that data to make, to make things that are more useful or things that people can, can actually use in some capacity? And so I think that that's the promise of artificial intelligence, um, which is the ability to actually crunch all that data and actually start to make decisions, um, start to make um, capital allocation decisions or w whatever it is that actually drive improved efficiency and, and productivity. And um, that's the basics of, of an economy, um, which are how do you drive efficiency in economy uh, in, in the economy? How do you drive that productivity? And um, I think that you know over the course of the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, um, almost every single company that I know uh, considers themselves a technology company or is trying to transform themselves into a technology company in order to capture some of that value. Hmm. Your firm, Fiscal Note, is leading the way in automating Washington and changing the way people consume, consume data and uh, understand legislation and regulations that are happening across federal, state, and local levels. What has been the biggest challenge in doing this work? Uh, there's a lot of challenges. So maybe I can divide into two. So the first is industry-based challenges, and the second is entrepreneurial challenges. So uh, industry challenges, I would say um, government data is still very opaque. Um, and uh, I would say that... Um, you know, particularly once you get down to the state and local levels, and now we do a lot of things internationally, so places like Southeast Asia, Latin America, uh, the Middle East. Um, it's not that you know people want to hide data. It's just that you know, um, despite the internet being around for the last you know twenty twenty five years, you know a lot of government institutions have not made that shift yet into fully cloud based, fully internet enabled um, systems, and so. Um, we are fighting the uphill battle, but we are definitely working through those challenges. Um, to give you a good example, you know, we collect every piece of legislation, every regulation com coming from federal, state, and local governments in the United States. Um, there are you know, thousands of federal regulatory agencies. There are um, tens of thousands of state regulatory agencies, and there's 88,000 cities and counties in the country. Um, you know, do I think that uh, you know, a, a, a city in um, you know, East Texas is going to have you know, full um, ability to transform their government? Um, uh, you know, over the last couple of years, probably not. Um, not because they don't want to, it's just because, you know, that's just the state of technology today. Um, the same thing goes for, you know, the some random, you know, regulators in, uh, in Oregon or in Nevada or whatever the case is. Um, and so we have to essentially work with uh, governments um, in the country and around the world to actually transform their data sets. But I think the work that we do is important because we're providing transparency um, for laws around the world. I think that, secondly, um, so entrepreneurial challenges, that's a whole other host of problems. But, um, you know, I started this company with, you know, three guys on a laptop and an idea. And so, you know, you can imagine every problem under the sun from, you know, uh, raising capital to uh, hiring and management and product development and sales and marketing, go-to-market challenges, customer support, operational challenges, scaling, international development and the like. And so, uh, it's definitely been an experience, but it's been it's been a fun one for sure. Hmm. Fiscal Note acquired CQ Roll Call last year for 180 million dollars. What led you to pursue that, and um, can you speak more broadly to the future of journalism in your uh, in your view? So we acquired uh, CQ Roll Call, as you said. Um, it was a division of the Economist Group for about 20 years. Um, 
CQ Roll Call for a very long time was the largest newsroom covering Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Um, Roll Call in particular, I think, um, you know, is very well established in Washington. Founded in 1955, CQ was founded in 1945. Um, So I think that, um, first of all, it's really interesting uh, being a 20-something-year-old Korean-American kid uh, acquiring, you know, these media assets that are, you know, twice my age. (laughs) but I think secondly, uh, probably more importantly, um, you know, I think that uh, we have to find new models to support great journalism. And I'm not convinced that um, advertising is it um, or even consumer subscription is probably the right model. Um, if you look at the sort of modern digital publications that are out there today, the Voxes, the BuzzFeeds of the world and whatnot, you know, Vices and the like, um, they are real. They are really, really struggling to find sustainable business models. Um, and if you're not the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post, I think it's very difficult to build a national consumer base to actually um, consume your information. And so, um, I think that for everybody else, you know, who's not the sort of three or four top newspapers in the country, you have to build sustainable models. And um, the model that we sort of got behind uh, was premium subscription and premium data combined with great journalism, which essentially in a non-jargony way means that we have one side of our business that sells really great data uh, to organizations in a B2B manner, and then the profits of that essentially sustain um, our ability to invest in great journalism and, and, and the newsroom. And so I think that uh, you know we felt like we could actually pioneer that model here, particularly in Washington. We are one of the very few newsrooms that are aggressively investing in hiring journalists and editors and producers and um, and, and the like. And so um, and we can do that because we have substantial profits from another side of our business that um, actually benefits from the the great journalism that our people do. Um, and so I think that from my perspective, the ability to kind of pioneer a new direction in the media industry, and the, particularly the journalism industry, um, was particularly enticing. Um, I think that, uh, you know, people in the journalism industry have seen quite a um, erosion of jobs, of opportunities and the like. And so from my perspective, at least, you know, the ability to actually to, to chart a new pathway is particularly exciting. That's great. <clears throat> I used to read CQ and Roll Call religiously <laughs> when I worked on the Hill. So um, that that's quite amazing. Um, there's been dramatic growth in the Asian American population since 1965, as you know, and you know, today we're part of the fastest growing racial group here in the United States. By 2050, Asian Americans will become the largest immigrant group in the country with about 12% of the total population. What can we do to ensure that Asian American voices are adequately represented in the media and in policy debates? Uh, well, I think there's a lot of, a lot of things, um, particularly from a political perspective. I have this theory, essentially, that... In order for any great sort of political awakening or, uh, you know, the establishment to take notice of a particular ethnic group, you sort of need three things. Um, The first thing is you need a pipeline of good political candidates, uh, people who are politically engaged and actually willing to stick their neck out and and, and get out there. So I think there's a lot of organizations that are out there, CK included, but also others that, that, you know, um, empower the next generation, um, try and build a pipeline, all all that stuff. I think the second thing, um, and they're they're a little bit more sort of out of the box, but I think the second thing that people need uh, or the ethnic group needs is um, a pipeline of entrepreneurs. And 
the reason why I say that is because in order for an ethnic group to um, to really um, have an uh, an awakening moment, um, you know, you need resources. And in America, like any other capitalist country, resources come from building companies, from creating wealth, uh, particularly individual institutional wealth that can support, you know, great philanthropy and civic organizations and the like. Um, and so I think Koreans, um, amazingly, are actually very entrepreneurial, particularly Korean Americans. And I think we need more Korean American entrepreneurs because um, the wealth creation that comes from entrepreneurship in particular drives uh, philanthropy and civic engagement um, and political contributions and everything else. Um, I think the last thing is media representation, um, which is sort of the third leg of the stool in every aspect, from not only in, in front of screen, but behind screen in producers and owners and media assets and the like. Because those are the ones sort of driving decisions around um, casting, around stories, around everything else on the back end. And so I think that if you have those three things, when you have you know, a great pipeline of political leaders, when you have you know, a, a, a base of individual wealth, uh, both from entrepreneurship but as well as sort of corporate attainment or corporate representation and the like, I mean, then you have uh, media representation. Those three stools, essentially, the legs of the stool essentially will result in the rising tide of Asian Americans. Obviously, there's a lot of work to be done on all three angles. Um, certainly, I think that in the past, you know, as somebody who sort of objectively views um, a lot of the work in the Asian American sort of civic community, um, there's certainly a lot of work, I think, in the first bucket. Um, there's actually a lot of work in the first bucket. Um, the second two buckets, I think, are real bottlenecks, you know, for real representation. So, you know, even if you have a thousand Asian American candidates, if they can't get political backing, if they can't get institutional funding, if they can't get resources, they're they're never going to make it to mainstream. And certainly, if they, uh, you know, don't have proper advocates in the media side of the house, um, they're never going to be able to, you know, crack, you know, their messaging or whatever the case is. And so, I think that, you know, objectively speaking, there's probably a lot of work that needs to get done in the, in the two other buckets. Um, and I think that. Um, if that happens, then I think that that'll be the sort of clicking point at which, you know, there's some shift. And I think when you look at other ethnic groups, um, you know, the African-American community, the Hispanic community and the like, you know, it's only when those three buckets have been filled with, you know, great candidates, um, a, a wide base of entrepreneurship and individual wealth and, and business contribution and media representation, um, whether it's in the form of ethnic media or in mainstream media, um, I think that's that's what that's what essentially results in sort of you know great empowerment. One of the themes that we're exploring at the CK Empower Summit is leadership development and how we can help more Korean Americans reach their full potential in their chosen fields. Were there any cultural norms growing up as a Korean American and as an entrepreneur that you struggle with personally? And I ask this because we like to at least focus one question when we do these podcast interviews to our next generation of of Korean Americans who might be you know, looking for uh, words of wisdom or encouragement uh, as they navigate uh, growing up both as Korean and American. And so uh, were there any challenges or, or, you know, advice that you might give that uh, has helped you really confidently become who you are today? I think that the biggest thing that Asian Americans and Korean Americans in particular have problems with is asking directly for the thing that they want. And, you know, like if you if you speak the Korean language, um, there's something really interesting about the Korean language, which is that you never really ask for something directly. You say something like, oh, wouldn't it be great if blah, blah, blah. Um, and there, it just it comes off as really rude if you ask a certain way. I think that language has implications in terms of culture. 
as a business person, I've consistently found that if I ask for something um, directly, um, more often than not, you know, we'll have a conversation. I'll probably get some form of it, you know, whether it's today or tomorrow or whatever in the future. But I think that Asian Americans have trouble asking directly for partnerships or um, investment or whatever it is. And this is one of the things I, I tell you know, emerging uh, Asian American entrepreneurs, which is, you know, if you want something, just ask for it. Uh, it's actually surprisingly harder than people think. And, and it's not just in terms of entrepreneurship, but it's in terms of, you know, setting expectations with executives, you know, setting direction, setting strategy, even, even at an employee level, um, asking for, you know, asking clarity around compensation or around goals, um, around uh, your relationship with your manager, uh, whatever the case is. And so I think that that's been a particularly interesting, interesting thing. You know, I think I grew up having been taught to be uh, very humble in what you're asking for, uh, you know, to be somewhat indirect, you know, in terms of making sure that people are comfortable, like, which is still very important. But I think in American society, you know, when you're, when you're competing in a very heavily competitive industry or whatever the case is, you know, there's no real time uh, to, to, to kind of, you know, beat around the bushes. And so uh, I just had this experience not just a week ago where I was, I was trying to get something and at some point I just shot the person an email and said, okay, look, um, you know, uh, <laughs> let me put everything on the table. I want this. I want X, Y, and Z. And they shot back an email and said, okay, great. We'll just, you can just have it. So <laughs> uh, honestly, it's stuff like that where I, I'm, even to this day, I'm still trying to figure out how to, how to recalibrate some of my, uh, my gut intuition. Hmm. Finally, what can national organizations like CKA do to nurture bold thinking, confidence, and risk-taking that are inherent in leadership? Uh, I think that, well, you need to have a goal, right? And so, um, at least for me, my, my personal motivations for getting involved in the Korean American community and the Asian American community are uh, you know, to try and get, you know, better empowerment, to get better representation, not because it actually, um, uh, because it's some sort of vanity based thing where, you know, people need to be, you know, more represented on television or whatever, because I, th but because I think it actually meaningfully improves people's lives and not just in these sort of big, um, big ways, you know, if there's like a big fight or like a violent protest or something, but in small ways in terms of how people perceive, um, uh, Asian Americans and Korean Americans. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I was just thinking about this the other day, which is, you know, every interaction that, that you have as a Korean American with the outs with the, with the rest of the world, you know, whether it's at a convenience store or, you know, an airport or whatever it is, um, their perspective of Asian Americans is shaped largely by those small interactions that you have. Um, and so, especially if you're going out to the South or to the, to the, to the Midwest where they just, you know, there's not that many interactions with Korean Americans or Asian Americans. Every time you see a flight attendant or every time you see, you know, a restaurant, uh, you know, uh, bartender, whatever it is, you know, they're shaping their perspective of Asian Americans primarily on their interaction with you. <laughs> and so that I think that puts a lot of um, emphasis on carrying yourself in a certain way and representing your community um, in every every single manner. And I think that national organizations um, have a really important role in terms of setting the tone, as well as um, sort of building those relationships at a broader level. But um, beyond national organizations, I think, you know, I just said an individual level, you know, I think a lot about this um, all the time and, and the ability for national organizations to empower people to give them the tools and the resources and, and support other organizations that are thinking about these topics, I think is really important. 
Well, you can meet Tim at our upcoming Empower Summit, where he will be speaking on the topic of entrepreneurship and uh, will also be returning to Fiscal Note for a closing reception on Saturday, November 2nd, after the full-day summit. And so be sure to join us there, and uh, we really appreciate this time together uh, today, uh, Tim, and uh, best of luck in all your pursuits. Thank Thank you you so much. What a rich interview with Tim Huang. Jess, I I thought your question about how Asian American voices can be adequately represented in media and the policy debates was particularly interesting and important. The fact that he had mentioned that there are three stools uh, for that, having great political candidates in the pipeline, um, having entrepreneurs who can support uh, these efforts, and then the third stool of having uh, media makers or newsmakers and people who are controlling the, the channels of communication are, are, are important insights. And uh, he's on that third stool. And he's developing that out as we speak. That's right. And I think, um, you know, it, it's so fascinating to hear about Tim's life story and, and really how he is Uh, viewing the world and the future uh, of the Asian American community and and also more broadly data and big data and and doing it in a way that um, I think um, is really inspiring and and also hopefully gives our listeners a chance to think about their own roles in in really uh, building greater influence in, in society. So I thought that point in particular, Abe, about you know how a, a community can build its influence over time and how those three things work synergistically was particularly impactful. We're really excited to welcome Tim to CKA at our upcoming Empower Summit. Uh, it will be held in Washington, D.C. on November 1st and 2nd. And the closing reception, Abe, will be at Tim's company, <laughs> Fiscal Note. So you guys could come and check that out uh, and meet Tim. Um, and I think it'll be really fun and, and really inspiring. So I uh, look forward to seeing many of you there. Well, great. Thank you very much, Jess. And uh, thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.